Thanks, guys. Good morning. My name is Chris Wachter. As Kevin said earlier, if you walked in late, um, I'm not Kevin, obviously, but uh, here to preach today. I'm from Hiawatha Church in South Minneapolis. Uh, we are the sending church of, uh, of Center Church. Uh, so we have a lot of uh, uh, relation in that regard and um, wanted to just uh, uh, start that way by encouraging you guys. We, uh, we think of you often. Uh, you're loved by Jesus uh, and also, um, also by us. I don't, I don't know most of you personally, but know that you're thought of by me and our leaders uh, and prayed for often. The Ocell family is very dear to us, but you guys are dear as well because uh, we're a, r- a related church and we care about you guys and what you're up to up here. So a uh, blessing for me to be here. Uh, I think it's been four years. Uh, we were trying to figure the date, couldn't remember. It's been a long time. Pre-COVID is like um, seven years, three years. It's all the same, right? Um, but it's been a long time. So really great to be back and, and to um, uh, preach today in Philippians. So diving in uh, to a series you guys are already uh, in or have been in for a little bit. So uh, we'll be in Philippians 3.12 to chapter 4, uh, verse 1 today. If you have a Bible or a phone app, want to turn there, uh, that's, that'd be great. Uh, but I'll have this all in screen here in just a second as well. Um, but uh, not much to recap with. I, I know Kevin preached the first part of chapter 3 last week. I'll say a couple of things about that after I read today's passage. Uh, but I'm calling the sermon today uh, Pressing, Straining, Crying, and Longing. Uh, lots of interesting verbs that come right from the passage uh, today that uh, are applied in ways that uh, might surprise you. So, uh, but just kind of have that in mind as we go here. So uh, Philippians 3.12 to 4.1. I'll read it here in full to begin, and then we'll come back and say a couple of things by way of further introduction. Uh, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if any, anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. All right, so a couple uh, things pulling from last week. I know some of you probably weren't here for that. Uh, so uh, you could probably tell, though, the way verse 12 started, that this uh, reads as one flow of thought from what he said in the previous passage, uh, which was to essentially highlight these two different kinds of righteousness that we find in the Bible that kind of spans the story from Old to New Testament, uh, from the righteousness that comes from the law, or comes from us, things that that we do, things that we seek to obey, uh, moving to the righteousness that comes from Christ. Uh, This is all from verse 9 especially, although uh, it was kind of filled throughout the passage. And Paul's point was to say that these are different, that these two types of righteousness are unmixable. 
Uh, Or as he says elsewhere, uh, the law is not of faith from Galatians 3 because the law says things like do this and you will live, do these things, keep these things, observe these commandments, and then you will have life. But faith says believe in Jesus and then you will live. Uh, Romans 10 speaks to this as well, but uh, we see in a lot of Paul's letters and other New Testament passages that these things are oil and water, theologically speaking. They are not mixable. Uh, you can sort of, we, we have a choice when it comes to uh, what we're going to fall under when it comes to righteousness or perfection or purity. Uh, is it the righteousness that comes from the law or by the works of our hands? Or is it the righteousness that comes down from heaven in the form of a person uh, in whom we are called to have faith and, and believe. And so when we move into today's passage, I think Paul's essentially clicking on that phrase, the righteousness from Christ or the righteousness that comes down from heaven and unpacking that idea further. And uh, verse 11 as well, or 10 to 11 says, I want to know Christ that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. So certainly flowing from this as well. Um, and if you, if you were to like tag this passage, you might tag it with phrases like grace-centered living, or the day-to-day Christian life, or Christian maturity. Uh, That word uh, mature comes up in this passage as well, which we'll touch on. Um, But it's almost, it's a great passage. It's almost a call to arms uh, about what life can look like in community, in the church. Because uh, notice this passage is not just a me and Jesus passage. Most passages actually aren't uh, in these letters. Uh, but this is a letter written to a church, a church family together. Uh, and, and it talks about imitation and things like that as well. It's inviting the church to look around a little bit. Look at others around you and learn from them, be encouraged by them, and maybe even mimic their way of having faith and living, uh, especially if they're leaders or maybe ahead of you in some way or just maybe a peer as well. So, One great question I want to just kind of offer out to you guys. I'm not going to maybe spend a ton of time on it today, but in light of that, uh, to think about as a church is um, how does a Philippians 3 type spirituality look in community in a local church versus just uh, looking at this and thinking about it in in like your own private individual life uh, type sense? How is striving for more of Jesus better together than alone? Maybe more possible together. Uh, than alone. That's a big thing I've learned a lot in life um, at this point in my spiritual journey is that um, reading the Bible with other Christians is usually more profitable than alone. Uh, not that doing it alone is bad. Obviously, that's a great thing. But usually I get more out of it when I'm in a circle with other Christians and we're all prompted by the Spirit kind of offering up insight uh, because invariably people see things I don't and and I see things they don't, and so forth. And so um, that's just one aspect of the Christian life, obviously, reading the Bible, but it could be other things as well. But how is striving for Jesus um, more possible, better, maybe more energizing together uh, than, uh, than alone? Uh, we're not monks here. We're not monastics, right? Uh, or we, uh, maybe you are, but you, know, you probably aren't. <laughs> uh, but, uh, we're, but we're in community. We're in a church, and this is written to a church family in a real city, just like, just like Minneapolis-St. Paul or Fridley. Um, uh, called Philippi, and so um, it has historical uh, precedence in that regard. But this is also a very complex passage, uh, too, with all that said, very complex. Any of these verses could almost be their own sermons, and so in order to organize this for us today, I think it's helpful for us to see it uh, from two perspectives. One, from a Paul is like me, or Paul is like 
any Christian uh, type angle. If you're not a Christian here today, you can, you can see it from a human perspective uh, still and learn a lot. The second angle would be uh, to see Paul as a picture of something more that kind of goes outside of us, and I'll get to that uh, secondarily a little bit later on. So uh, we'll start today, though, by looking at this from that first angle, uh, from a Paul is one of us angle. This is uh, the more maybe obvious way to read it, which isn't uh, right or wrong. It just is. Uh, Paul is, is like us. He's a sinner saved by grace. He used to murder Christians. And now he is like the biggest proponent of it in the ancient world. It's just this stark change uh, in God's wisdom. He does that stuff, right? Uh, so uh, to prove its authenticity and, and give himself glory. Uh, but Paul says in verse 12, uh, to go back to that first passage, not that I've already obtained this uh, or I'm already perfect. Uh, basically here, what I like about this is Paul is trying in one sense to kind of lower the Philippians' view of him. He's like, you know, dial back what you think of me uh, a little bit. I'm not as good as you think I am. I'm not perfect. And, and maybe that's the initial lesson here, is that the Christian life isn't about perfection, uh, at least on a moralistic level. I don't think that he's talking about perfection here on that level necessarily, but I think we can still apply it there uh, on, on one sense. And, and to say that that's not what it's about. It's not about perfection on that level, but rather owning our imperfection in light of this Going back to last week again, this newfound righteousness of Jesus that's given rather than earned. Uh, so Christians can say, I'm greatly imperfect and yet fully saved at the same time because of grace. Greatly imperfect yet completely and fully sealed with the Holy Spirit at the exact same time because grace saves us, uh, not our performance. Uh, it, it kind of, grace creates safety to... Uh, to talk this way. We, we can talk, we can own our imperfections in a very safe way because of grace, because we don't, we're not saved by what we do. If, you're not, if you think you're saved by what you do, you're going to tend to pretend that things are better than they're not, because you're worried at the perception of God on you or other Christians if you're not doing that well. And so a grace kind of creates this safety net to say, uh, I'm not perfect, and um, I'm striving, but, but I'm not, I'm, I'm very far from perfect. And and Christ accepts me regardless. Uh, but he does say, though, here, I do strive. I press on toward the goal of more of Christ. And I love that relationship here uh, where he says, um, or between making Jesus his own because Jesus made him his own. Now, this is a very appalling way to talk. Uh, if you've read others of Paul's letters, maybe you've heard this. Uh, also, John talks this way. If you think of places like 1 John 4, 19, where, where he says, we love because he first loved us. So look at the order there. Also, Galatians 4, 9, this also is Paul. Uh, now that you know God, then he kind of catches himself and qualifies that idea by saying, or rather that you are known by him. That's like the better way to think. Or the more true way is to say, you've been known by God more than you understand him, more than you know him. It's, again, safety net, right? Uh, or we love uh, God or, or other Christians, but that's not the most important thing. What's most important is you have first been loved by God to hell and back. At the highest of cost to him, you've been, been won over. You've been loved at the highest sacrificial level uh, that there is. God gave up his one and only son to die on a cross among criminals for you and me. 
And so the order there, again, is critically important for, for our, our theology, but just for our, our daily lives to understand this and not to flip that around or even put them next to each other. They're not equal. There's a greater and a lesser uh, in those two, in, in these three, really, uh, kind of almost dualisms. And to get them in the right order is to have freedom and to have happiness and to have peace and joy and love uh, and to get the gospel right, which is probably the most important thing. So I would say here, as you guys read this, as we do today, but as you guys read this passage in the future and as a church, as you finish Philippians, let's not bury the lead. The gospel of Philippians 3 is Jesus has made you his own. He has purchased you with his blood. He has uh, adopted you as sons and daughters, and you now have a seat at the king's table. And because of that, we press on to know Christ more and to bask more uh, in his grace, as though we're on the beach just soaking up the sun and how good that feels, especially now in the throes of winter, um, or would feel. Um, that's what it's like. That's, 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 the, that's what it looks like to strive. Now, there's a, we'll come back to some of that, but th- there is a darker side to this passage, too, that is important to understand, and also how it accentuates this idea of striving. So I'll kind of come full circle here, but a little bit of a sidebar uh, is to look at verse 18. This is the, uh, again, the darker side is when he talks about enemies of the cross. Uh, when he says that with tears, I've said this over and over again, it's brought me to tears. And I've said to you that many are enemies of the cross of Christ. And what's interesting about that phrase, I think, are two things. One, that he says enemies of the cross and and not just uh, enemies. Because there is something very central about the cross to the Christian faith. And to reject the cross and what Jesus did there is to kind of classify oneself as an enemy of the faith. But also, too, the second kind of profound thing is that Paul is probably talking about Christians here, or maybe now ex-Christians, uh, or people who look the part, but who have now rejected what they've formerly tasted, rather than Paul just saying um, the, the, the fallen non-Christian world in general is an enemy of the cross, though, though that's certainly true, uh, and it might be part of what he's saying, but it's more likely he's talking about Christians who have walked away. This explains Paul's tears, why he's crying more, as it's more likely he'd cry over former Christians that he knew by name becoming enemies of the cross uh, rather than just crying over the world itself. Just like you and I might cry more over a friend or a child who left the faith versus the more open notion that many people around the world that we don't know aren't Christians yet. You guys see the difference? That, that's certainly a grieving thing, but probably not what, what is in focus here. Uh, this is a big theme, if you've read others of, of Paul's letters, big theme in Paul's letters as well, this, this idea of um, uh, inner church, within the church, de-emphasizing of the cross from Christians, uh, or so-called Christians, or almost Christians, or kind of Christians. Uh, John talks about it as well, the book of Hebrews. It's all over the place. And so it makes sense that it would be here as well. Um, that Paul will be talking about people who've rejected the cross uh, and started in the church and started to worship themselves or their own bellies. That's kind of like another phrase for they're worshiping 
their gut, their, their, in, their innards, their, their, their themselves. They, they've added to Jesus. They've embraced a righteousness of their own that came from the law. And they've kind of circled back to uh, what they formerly did before they were kind of tasting um, the faith. I was reading an article by uh, Todd Brewer. Uh, some of you might know that name, but uh, he, um, he manages a, a, a theology website right now. It's one of my, f- my favorite sites to uh, go for resources currently, but he's a former New Testament professor, which recounted a true story uh, of his uh, in a college ministry where he saw an atheist become a Christian, and it was very exciting for them, uh, but for the ministry. But then how other Christians around this uh, new convert uh, graduated him to, quote, the real work of Christianity, which took the form of rigorous asceticism, self-denial, uh, joyless Christian disciplines, and even getting, uh, quote blo- his word, bludgeoned by good but not necessary to fully, perfectly understand doctrines like predestination. Uh, he, he continues in the article, and I, I threw this on screen, but this is a little further down. He says, if you've been around Christians long enough, you'll eventually hear about some form of sanctification. The good news preached to the world morphs or changes into the discipline of Christian maturity. The gospel gives way to law. It's not enough to have just plain ordinary faith, Gerhard Forty sarcastically observed. We must be possessed of real, true, sincere, heartfelt faith. Um, when I was younger, I remember, um, this, might not, this might not be your story, but um, some of you can probably re- relate, is I grew up in a time where there was this distinction between um, Christians and then, like, born-again Christians. Is that still a thing? I don't know if people talk this way or not anymore. Um, I should know this. I'm a pastor, but um, I don't hear it as much anymore. That's why I'm saying that. But uh, I remember, like, having that, hearing that as a kid and these distinctions in my mind that there's, there's normal Christians and then there's, like, sold-out Christians. There's, like, uh, super-Christians or born-again. It's, like, special. Oh, they're born-again. Well, then, then, then it's legit. But if they're not born-again, then I'll, I guess it's not true or something. It was really kind of a, a mind-bender uh, for me. And, and the, looking back, and it didn't shape me well. Um, that's kind of what he's saying here. And he, he says a lot more in the article, but this is a helpful excerpt. But I'm sharing this for a couple of reasons today in light of Philippians 3. One... I think this is in part what it looks like to start to become an enemy of the cross. Um, That is to decentralize it, to make it insufficient, uh, or to make it a stepping stone onto better things or greater things that we might mark or tag as truly mature Christian things to be doing with our time uh, or to be centralizing theologically. Um, And... That's the first thing. The sec- not, that all, not that all that are doing that or talking in these terms are, are, you know, fully enemies. It's just the point is that it's a slippery slope. And then two, our striving, as we, as we look at Paul's le- uh, words here in this letter, our striving must be after the right thing. So if we talk about, like, what's it look like to strive and to press on, they must be after the right things or it can crush us in the process. And if it crushes us, it doesn't do us any good. Um, you know, the question is, is Jesus enough or isn't he? Is he kind of enough? Is he the starting block 
but like not the racetrack or the finish line? Is, is the gospel the starting block, but, but not the whole thing? And I think what Paul is saying here in Philippians 3 is that we strive after more of what we already have. We stand firm on what we're already standing on. In fact, that, um, that uh, phrase, standing firm from four, chapter 4, verse 1 in today's passage, is a non-moving image, right? If you're standing firm on something, you're standing, you're not moving. And uh, I think in a lot of ways, standing constitutes the Christian life a lot better than the idea of running. Luther once said, um, Martin Luther to progress as Christians is always to begin again. To advance, to progress, to mature as Christians is to start over at the very beginning every single day with the gospel. There's no such thing as a Christianity that sort of morphs or changes into something other than what you heard on day one. You can know it better and deeper in a more grandiose way, but you, you, we don't move on from it. Uh, we, we see uh, other theologians call it the totality of grace, that, that grace is total, that, that there's no such thing as um, a partial grace that sort of meets our needs, but then there are other things like law and commandments and rigorous asceticism that do more for us. And so in this passage, part of how this idea looks is affirming our identities as Christians. This Paul, what Paul is partly doing here is saying, this is what's true about you guys. If you believe in Jesus, this is uh, a label I would give you. Uh, this is a, um, a reality that's already true for you that I'm like reminding you of and uh, giving you a firmer foundation of it to stand on so you know it better. So rather than uh, equating striving with uh, global humanitarianism or becoming a better version of ourselves or rigorous Christian disciplines, he says things like, we are citizens of heaven. Uh, So in light of the idea of striving, he's saying, uh, you are citizens, not you will be if you're, you know, a good person for the rest of your life, but you already are in Christ. You have a a new... um, type of passport, a a new badge. You you are a citizen of God's home. Uh, And actually, it's a really helpful illustration if you think about it, because as like uh, citizens of this country, uh, our citizenship cannot be stripped away from us, right? Like it's, there's, there's nothing, it's very rare that that happens. Uh, I think there are a couple instances where it can be, but it's extremely rare. Your citizenship as United States uh, citizen cannot be stripped away uh, it's the same whether you're good or bad. You are just as much a citizen of this country on your best days and your worst days and your medium days. It doesn't, like, fluctuate. Like, oh, you're especially an American citizen because you shoveled your neighbor's walk, you know? You're especially, um, I don't know where you all live, but uh, a, a friddlyite, you know, if you, uh, if you shovel your, your neighbor's walk or whatever. Uh, that's, that's not how it works, right? In fact, I could be in prison and be just as much of a citizen of this country as if I were a free man, right? It'd be the same. You're not more a citizen of this country um, based on your observance of of the laws of the country and so forth. And so anyway, it's an interesting metaphor then because I think this is true uh, for our faith and for Christianity 
and for the gospel as well. You, you can't be a super Christian. There's no such thing as a nominal Christian or a super Christian. Those aren't biblical ideas. Uh, in fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul uh, mocks the idea of uh, super Christians, uh, these super apostles, if you've read that letter before. He actually makes fun of it. He pokes at it and uh, destroys it, actually, uh, with the argumentation. But we're either saved or not. In Christ, there is neither moral nor immoral. There is just Christian. And this passage invites us to stand firm on that, to press into that. Uh, Verse 16 says, again, um, that only let us hold true to what we have, past tense, attained. Right? So hold fast, cling to it for dear life, something you've already attained, which is salvation, because it's given, not earned. Press on in that, even when other, even if other Christians criticize your faith for being too simple. Um, and you guys will invariably have this uh, if you are a grace-centered, gospel-centered Christian, um, just like Jesus had this, or his disciples, whenever people who thought they knew better said, why aren't they fasting? Why aren't they doing more? You know, we are. Uh, why aren't they, like, abstaining from more things and being more rigorously spiritual? And Jesus is like, well, because I'm here, and I'm the bridegroom, and I'm sufficient. Uh, and when that happens, we understand who Jesus is and what he's done. He becomes the son of our solar system in every aspect, every, every sense of the word. Um, there are no, and we orbit around that. There are, there's no two sons or three sons of the solar system. It's only him. And what will probably invariably happen, because you see this in the New Testament, is that you'll be criticized for your faith being too simple, um, when in fact it is the most robust, sturdy foundation you can possibly stand on uh, in the universe. All right, so then, uh, moving on to this idea of um, imitation. This This is a passage on imitating. Again, he's saying look around and ask yourself, are there Christians in my life who believe this? All this stuff we've talked about today. Uh, and more. All of Philippians up to this point, you could say. Are there Christians, cross-centered, non-cross-denying, grace-centered, non-law-embracing Christians in your life who practice these things, who are in these things mature? And if so, imitate them, he's saying. Look around, especially maybe to leaders, but peers as well people who are maybe a bit ahead of you in the faith, or maybe they're not, but maybe they understand these things more than you, um, or they, they, um, they, they image them and, well. And, and what, what Paul is saying here is look around and imitate. I, I think um, I've looked at my own life a lot through this lens, and I, I, I've just seen the pattern of I tend to become like people that I hang out with the most. You know, like you, you tend to kind of take on the characteristics of your friend circles, you know, and what they value and how they talk and how they dress. It's very natural to do that. That's not something you can actually probably avoid. It's, it's almost impossible. So if that's the case, um, be close to the body of Christ. Uh, imitate them. Be around them. It's, it's really hard to uh, have our life transformed through any other way. And Paul's, Paul again here is saying, if there's a Christian that understands grace well, look at their life Um, imitate them. Strive by being content. 
in Jesus. Strain by knowing that you're saved by grace, not by works. Press on by, not by graduating from the gospel, but by drilling deeper. As he says elsewhere in Ephesians 3, praying for a different church, Paul says, and notice this prayer, how it's praying for Christians to understand the gospel better. Like, this is what advancement in the faith looks like. So pray this way. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. All right. Um, so going back to how I started, there's a there's two lenses, I think, by which to understand this passage. There's the one we just talked about. There's looking at Paul as though he's a fellow journeyer. He's a fellow struggler. Uh, he's a, one who presses, seeking to press on in the gospel uh, and to reject false teaching and to, be, to be one, live a life worthy of imitation. But there's also more going on here than meets the eye. Uh, w- one of the things that uh, Paul makes more clear, probably, in other letters, is that he views his ministry as emblematic of Christ's, or at least this is something that becomes clear when we read that he is a suffering apostle who suffers for his churches, just like Christ ultimately suffered for us all. Uh, Mark Seifried says in his commentary on uh, 2 Corinthians, I believe, but the same thing applies here in Philippians, is the word and message of the Apostle Paul to his churches is not limited merely to his preaching and his writing, but his entire life is an expression of the gospel and of God's work in Christ. And so, if this is the case then when we read Paul, we have to have two lenses. One lens that sees him as like us, and one lens that sees him as like Jesus, as one who suffers for his churches and loves his churches, just like in the macro sense, Christ loves the capital C church and suffers for the capital C church. So if we view it like in the second way, then we are the receivers. We're the beneficiaries of his love and work, rather as the ones uh, who are uh, maybe called here to copy Paul. So the first lens would be more of an example to follow, but the second lens, more of a gospel to see. All right, so if Paul were a picture of Christ then, as he is, then there's three things here uh, that we also need to take away from this passage uh, more than just, uh, you know, like, what do we do here? How do we do this? Um, And the first is this. Paul's tears are a picture of Christ's tears, uh, even for his enemies. Um, So not just a picture of how Christ wept at funerals, but how here in Philippians 3, he cried over his enemies just like Jesus does uh, elsewhere. God is a God of compassion, love, and desire. Uh, He loves his enemies, uh, even you and me, and he transforms them into his friends. So Uh, Whether it's John 11 or Luke 19, whether you see Jesus cry over his friends, but also his enemies. Or in Hebrews 5, 7, where it says Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. uh, Speaking of his kind of uh, uh, imminent death, but also his time on the cross. uh, To God, to his Father, who was able to save him from death 
like you see here, that's the ultimate time he wept uh, when he was pouring, sweating blood, um, pouring out his cries to heaven and, and his sweat, blood, and tears uh, because he loved, his, uh, he loved us so much. Um, and so what was interesting about this first piece then is that uh, you have this kind of irony in the passage of some people are making enemies of the cross, but the cross is where Christ died for his enemies. And so you kind of have this like usurping, this betterness that Christ is accomplishing here. But, but, this is, but this is the gospel. Not that he died for us when we were good, but as Romans 5, 7 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so Paul's tears and his love uh, here become emblematic of Jesus's rather than just something for you to copy. Uh, relatedly, this, is, uh, also, uh, this also means that Paul's love and longing from 4.1 is really Christ's love and longing for us. Uh, th- this is, again, not first and foremost uh, something to follow, but a gospel to receive. Christ longs for you guys. He longs for me. Uh, like Paul, Jesus wrote you guys a letter as well with his own blood. It's a love letter full of commitment and hope and eternal promises and vows. And so I think like when we're confronted with this idea, we, we have a question I think arises and it kind of goes back to uh, probably what Kevin preached last week, the previous passage, and what Paul is saying about the two kinds of righteousness, law and grace, or works and grace, law and faith, and the, that kind of duality. The, the question is, is your day-to-day Christian life built more around the law of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or is it more built around Christ's longing for you? Because those are not the same thing. The former might be a good thing, uh, and, and of course the church loves God. We open up like a flower underneath his greater love for us. But the question of like, is our day-to-day Christian life built more around one or the other? It, it better be the latter. It has to be the latter. The essence of your faith is not love God well. It's not love people well. The New Testament does not teach that. That's a summation of the law, but Christ passes it up. He replaces it with his bloody body, rather than underlining it again as a moral teacher saying, I came to help you keep all of this well. That that is not the flow of the biblical story, as, as Paul is at pains to say in Philippians, as Jesus himself is at pains to say in the gospel account. Uh, he came to not really say what Moses said. Moses, John 1.17 says, Moses uh, brought the law, Jesus brought grace and truth. That is not a, Moses brought the law and Jesus is adding grace onto that like it's frosting on a cupcake. He's saying, uh, but, like, Moses brought the law, but Jesus is bringing something better. He's bringing salvation when you haven't kept the law. Acceptance when you haven't kept the commandments. That's, that's the gospel. If we don't have that, it's, it's not good news. It's just rewards. You did it. Great job. Like, you know, it, it, the gospel's not flattery, like patting you on the back. It, that's, not what, that's not what it is. It's uh, exoneration when we're enemies, when we're on death row, we don't deserve it. And so that's what Jesus and the New Testament letters are at pains to show us, is that Christ's longing for you, imaged in Paul's longing for the Philippians, 
is the most important piece. Uh, It's actually more important than anything else in this passage in regards to your Christian life. Uh, It is is the idea that God has loved us better and more comprehensively and in a more gospel, eternal way than we will ever love him. And so if we strive or strain ourselves for anything, it's to remain grounded in that one great truth right up to our dying breath. All right, and finally, this also means that Paul's striving, straining, and even pressing on for perfection is a picture of Jesus' sufferings. Because these are suffering words, right? Striving, pressing takes effort. Uh, Straining sounds like uh, grapes being strained for juice, which is not far from different types of uh, crucifixion imagery used elsewhere in the Bible. But even in Hebrews 2.10, you see this kind of odd verse where it says, God made Jesus perfect through suffering. This is, uh, I think, um, probably the the, the best kind of correlation verse we have for Paul's uh, mention of perfection, striving after perfection in Philippians 3 on that kind of symbolic level. And that is uh, when it says God made Jesus uh, perfect, which is not saying that Jesus was imperfect at some point in his life. We know that. But what it's saying is like Paul had a mission, like a trajectory to keep, a race to run, uh, so did Jesus. Uh, he, he, Jesus, too, was human. He grew in his, in, in his knowledge of his Father's will and his mission and, and was perfectly obedient to the call to die on a cross for the sins of the world. That, that's what Hebrews is saying. And again, that's what Paul is kind of an emblem of or a symbol of before the Philippian church in the first century. So Paul's strivings then, again, um, I kind of started this way, his striving for perfection is not a moralistic endeavor, but an image of the one who went the distance for us, uh, who never wavered, who was wrung out for our sins perfectly on the cross. And one of the reasons why I think this is so important, um, other than it's true, I guess that's the most important thing, uh, but, but second to that is that you guys might read a passage like this, if not today, at some point in your life as a Christian, and you'll and you'll you'll think, I am not pressing on that well. I am not straining. I'm not striving as a believer. And what makes this theology so important then is, if this is true, then it's actually okay if you're not striving that well because someone else strove for you. If you're not straining that well or or wringing yourself out for other believers, um, weeping, for Christians who are falling away, that's actually okay. That's, that's, that's not the main point. The point is, Jesus did that for you. He was strained. There's no more, you don't have to suffer anymore for your own salvation. You don't have to cut yourself or bleed. You don't have to deny yourself. He, was, he denied himself. You don't have to fast. He fasted on the cross. You don't have to be an ascetic. He was the ascetic. He let go of things that we might receive. He starved himself on the cross that we might be gorged on his grace. And so Jesus Christ is your perfection. He's my perfection. Uh, It's his work, his nail-pierced hands that define you, not your calloused hands. 
that show your hard work. It's not what defines you as a Christian, ever, ever. You don't, you don't graduate to that after you convert. Uh, it's always Jesus' nail-pierced hands that you put your fingers in like Thomas, if you remember that story, John 20, 21, wherever that is. Uh, you put your finger in his scars and ident- he, see he and you then are identified based on what he's done for you. That's why we eat the bread and drink the wine of that every day. Like communion is not a time where we eat the commandments of God. Like there's, there's no symbol of the Ten Commandments that we put on the table when, when we take communion and we eat that as if that's what we nourish on. You, you're not nourished by the law. The laws don't nourish you. They starve us. What actually enters in and feeds us and saves us from our sins and actually gives us hope is Jesus' blood alone. And that's what Paul is like. I want to know that more. I want to know it better. I want to ground myself on that more. I want you, this church I love in Philippi, this is what this is saying to this church, center church in Philly, Minnesota, my church, Hiawatha Church, South Minneapolis, is I want churches to know this and not to become an enemy of the cross uh, after they convert. You might think, how's it even possible? Well, it is. It is. Christians do it all the time. All the time. And this is why he's weeping over this. Jesus was strained for you and me. And, and you, church, are his crown. Look at how this closes up. Um, 4.1, which again is really Christ's words to us. He, he says, you, church, are my joy. You are my crown and my beloved. You are the evidence of the fruit of his labors, in other words. Uh, and if you are already the crown of Christ and you are his beloved, if, the, if you are already his bride, the church is his bride, remember, then what else truly needs to be done? I mean, I, I think in one sense that is um, an appropriate question to kind of end with almost any passage you read, but here, since it literally does, um, is we are, if we are the evidence of the work of Christ, you know, if, if we're the crown of Christ, if we are his bride, his true beloved, then what else actually has to be done? And if we have an answer for that other than no, I think I would just invite you to let this passage challenge that idea um, that there, there isn't anything other new to be done other than to drill deeper into the ground of the gospel. And again, the best place to do that is in the context of a loving church, an imperfect church, but a loving church, a church that has a Bible in one hand, you know, and with their other hand, they're embracing people who are hurt and sick and struggling and with with the the communion elements out in front. I mean, if we have that in the church, we have all the marks. And to put down roots and to be a part of the family, and that, that's the best place to drill deeper into what you've already attained. If you're a Christian, you've already attained salvation. You've attained it based on Christ's work. And so if that's true, then Read Paul's strivings and strive yourself in light of that one great grounding, never going to change idea and resist all things that, um, that are contrary to it.